Welcome back to part two of this interview with Dr. Tom Cowan, a medical doctor who has an alternative theory on what's going on with viruses, what viruses really are. Are viruses contagious? This is like totally different than anything you've ever heard. But as Tom explains, it's completely based on science, actual science. So we'll continue in with this part two of this episode now. So originally you grew up and got into a career of medicine as a medical doctor thinking what? What was kind of your original view of sort of viruses and bacteria and how these epidemics happen and stuff? Exactly as everybody thought? Or did you have variations on your theories back then? I mean, you, I've been at this for about 40 years. And all I can say is there was a lot from the get-go that I didn't believe. I would in no way have been able to articulate the science like I do now. But one of my main teachers, I, I haven't had very many teachers because I would admit I'm a bit of a curmudgeon, and, and like my high school tennis coach said, you're the hardest person I've ever had to teach. And, of course, I said, well, you're a lousy teacher. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind, of, uh, that's kind of my basic character. He didn't really like that. But anyways, I, I don't think I'm so hard to teach. I'm just discriminating about who I listen to. My absolute main teacher in medicine, the guy who's passed away, name was Otto Wolf, who knew a lot, and he that's an understatement. He basically said, viruses are how the body excretes toxins. This is 40 years ago. And he was adamant that there is no evidence that these viruses are either contagious or cause disease. Viruses are how the body excretes toxins. And, you know, it's very similar to a guy named Kerry Mullis, who actually uh, was the inventor and given the Nobel Prize for discovering this PCR test, which is the test that's being used to so-called doc, you know, prove that this is caused by a virus. And Kerry Mullis was adamant that this test can never be used, A, to diagnose a viral infection. Mm -hmm. B, you can never use this test to prove viral causation, period. And, and he said anybody who tries to do that either simply doesn't understand the science or the nature of this test. And that actually led Kerry to publicly say that there is no evidence that HIV causes AIDS because it was completely based on, on PCR tests and then antibody tests, which are even more unreliable. And mm -hmm. I can get into that. You need to. But the interesting thing about it is, so Kerry, you know, was a brilliant chemist and scientist. And when he discovered that there was no evidence of the, to suggest that HIV was causing AIDS, except the PCR and the antibody tests, which he knew were completely, uh, basically bogus, he said he, he didn't say anything for a decade because he kept thinking, I must be stupid or I don't understand this. The, the whole world can't be wrong. And that's a very natural response. And I must say, uh, even though I didn't have so much of that because I tend to believe myself more than I probably should. But anyways, I know what he means by that. You just can't believe it. And then finally, he, he said publicly, I used to just think there was a bunch of wise men out there 
And if I ever had a chance to talk to them, they could set me straight. So I'm not going to say anything about this. And then finally he goes public and says what he thinks. And then he, they give him a Nobel Prize. And then he goes to a dinner party of Nobel Prize winners. And there's Luc Montagne, who discovered, was given the Nobel Prize for discovering that HIV causes AIDS based on antibody tests. So he goes up to Luke and he says, finally, I get to talk to the wise man. Can you show me, a, can you give me a reference for a study that shows that this HIV virus was isolated, purified, and was shown to cause AIDS? And Montagne said, yeah, there's this one with baboons. And Carrie happened to know that study, and he said, they didn't even mention HIV in that study. He said, do you have a different one that actually talks about HIV? And Montagne walked away and wouldn't talk to him. Hmm. At that point, Carrie said to himself, and then eventually publicly, the reality is there's no wise men out there. Wow. And, you know, the same thing happened with a guy named uh, Stefan Lenka, who was the one who put up the money to see if there was actually the German court system could prove that a measles virus exists, not even that it causes disease. So he puts up 100,000 euros, I think, of his own money, and then a bunch of people tried to claim the prize. And eventually, as I said, he won, and they said there's no evidence that it even exists. And he had sat on that for 20 years, again, thinking, I, I'm a virologist. I know how to isolate, purify, and characterize viruses. I know that whenever we did that and we tried to make an animal or a person sick, it just didn't work. And we came to the conclusion that these are not pathogenic. They're basically the way that the cell or the tissue detoxifies, or they're communication messengers, or they're just cellular debris. And I, I just kept thinking, he said, I must be wrong. The whole world can't be, you know, incorrect. I just need to find out. And then somehow he got in touch with the head of the Robert Koch Institute or something like that. And he found out that the guy didn't know. He had no evidence to actually demonstrate pathogenicity of any virus. And so that's when he did the, 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 the challenge. My, my point of it is, uh, everybody out there, will, when they hear this, will, will, the first thing they'll say is, this Tom guy, he can't possibly be right. Right. First of all, it's not me. I'm just interpreting the science. Sure. Mostly not even interpreting it. I'm just saying what they said. They, they, if you ask the, the people who write these papers, they say, we did not isolate or purify a virus. We don't know that it caused disease. That's what they say. Those are the papers that are being used to demonstrate that this is a viral-caused disease. So I, I'm just a reporter here or somebody who can actually read scientific papers, which I don't even like reading them, but I had no choice if I wanted to understand them. So I understand the, almost the horror and the skepticism and they can't be and, you know, like, how can, how can this be? How can we all be wrong? We all had that. But all I would say is, you know, you sort of work your way through that and keep your eye focused on the prize. The prize is Show me the evidence. And I, like I say, if somebody, I'm happy to be wrong, all you have to do is actually show me the real science, 
and I'll take a look, and I know how to read this now, and I'll correct my what I'm saying. But I, a lot of people have tried in the last three months, and I see no evidence of this right now. Okay, so I have three follow-up questions on that. One, where are the medical experts getting it wrong then? Are they just memorizing the wrong info as they go through school and learning? They're just, they're so attached to whatever theories that they're being taught. They memorize this is the way it works, that they basically give up that need to investigate on their own or wonder how things are happening? So it's, it's, a, it's a little bit different than that. And, I, and I, can, I can tell you how it historically happened. So this guy named Robert Koch, who is a, one of the world's most famous microbiologists, he's similar to Louis Pasteur. Pasteur was, you know, he was kind of a fraudulent guy, and he was doing things for funny reasons. But Koch was a real scientist, and he's the one who came up with very clear rules of how to, how to prove microbiological causation. The rules are... The people who are sick have the microbes. I mean, that's like, if I tell you there's a flying saucer, I think you would say, can you see it? If I say no, you probably think I'm an idiot. Uh, so all he said was, if you think somebody has, you know, if you take 10 or 100 people or 1,000 people with the same symptoms of measles, you should find the microbe in every one of them. Right. That's just common sense. Mm-hmm. Second. All the people who don't have measles, you shouldn't have the microbe. Right. Right? Or else you would have the symptoms. Or else they would have the symptoms. Right. That's not something you can disprove. That's how human beings think. And then, so, okay, now all the ones who have it, you know, who are sick have the microbe. All the ones who aren't sick, they don't. But you can't make up words like they're carriers or they're blah, blah, blah. They just make up words for that. But that's, and then... You isolate the, the microbe. In other words, you don't just give them snot. You isolate the microbe, which they can do, and then you sh- should make the other one sick, the not sick ones. Those are Koch's postulates. That's how humans think about life. And then what happened was he did this for a number of different bacteria because they couldn't do it with viruses. He did it with anthrax. He did it with... I don't know, strep, and a, probably, I'm not sure if he did it with strep. He did it with about six or seven different microbes, and he came to the conclusion that it didn't work. He could see the microbe, uh, but some of the people who were sick didn't have it, and some of the people who weren't sick did have it, and every time he isolated it, he couldn't make anybody sick. Mm. And he came to what I call a fork in the road. He could have either said... You know what? I I had a good idea. It actually makes a lot of sense. I tried it out. It didn't work. I mean, what's the big deal? But for some reason, I always like to say, when you come to a fork in the road, it's best to take it. So he took it. And he said, it turns out Coke's postulates are wrong, even though he himself is Coke. And he said, there's another way to prove this, which is, I don't know. He didn't really say what the other way to prove it. But essentially he said, I know that anthrax is caused by this bacteria. Whenever I try to prove it, it doesn't work. And I'm just going to change how we, the rules of how we prove it. To get the result that he wants. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, he knew that it was, the theory was right. He didn't know how he knew that. 
He actually came up with very clear ways of proving it. He proved it didn't work that way, so he changed the rules. Mm. That's what happened with biology. They, they figured out how to isolate, purify, give it to uh, people who weren't sick. Nobody got sick, and they said, we're going to change the rules, and if, if we take this unpurified stuff and inoculate it on fetal cells, and it, it kills them after we starve and poison it, then we know that it's the virus. So we changed the rules. And you could say, how come they didn't catch this? And that's something I don't know that I even want to get into. I mean, it's interesting that Stefan Leica used to say this was a fraud, and now he says, I don't want to, I, I'm not even going to talk to anybody who says it's a fraud. A fraud. It was a mistake. They just made a mistake. And they thought that this was a way to prove viral causation. And it's not scientific. And then because their careers and everything was based on this, this became the method. And then eventually you find genetic material, which is the PCR test. You don't know where it came from because you didn't isolate or purify it. So you don't know where this little piece of metal actually comes from. And then you, you start uh, building up a case that this, this means causation. And, you know, one of the ways I describe this, just so to help people see it, it's a bit like somebody says to you, okay, Melissa, I, I'm going to give you a million dollars if you can make the Lego castle of King Freddy III. Right? He was 1200 A.D., King Freddy, he was a famous British king, and he had a magnificent castle, and I want you to recreate it out of Legos, right? I'm going to give you a million dollars to do this. Mm -hmm. Now, most people in that situation would say, can you show me a picture of King Freddy's castle? Right. Right? And, and the answer is no. You can't see a picture. Well, do you know what it looks like? No. Yeah, I'm not going to tell you. You just have to make the castle. You then have one of two choices. You could say, this guy's an idiot, and I'm not going to make this because I have no idea what to make. Or, you know, this is my job, and it pays well, and, you know, maybe I can figure it out. So you start looking through the Lego pieces, and you find a moat, right? And then you find a window, and you say to yourself, well, I know that castles have moats and windows and bridges and drawbridges and, and turrets and all this. So you start piecing it together, and then you fill in the rest with your computer model. And then somebody gives you a Nobel Prize for finding a drawbridge, because after all, we all know that the only, the only things that have drawbridges are castles. And this goes on, this went on for 50 years with the measles virus. One piece after another. They never got the whole thing, but they got one piece after another, and they filled in the rest with their computer model. And so they then pieced together the whole, you know, picture of this virus, the whole genome, everything. Uh, and by these little pieces, never having an actual picture of, of King Freddy's castle. And then 50 years later, Stefan Leike comes along and says, you know what? King Freddy didn't even have a castle. <laughs> and then you, you get very angry because you've now spent 50 years 
trying to prove that the moat and everything is part of King Freddy's castle. And you get very upset with some guy actually proving that King Freddy, first of all, there wasn't a King Freddy, and second of all, he didn't have a castle. Well, so then wouldn't it be a mistake, as he said at first, uh, maybe realizing they couldn't figure it out, but isn't it essentially still fraud, keeping up the theory after the fact that they realized they couldn't figure it out? They don't realize it. They think if they, they find all these pieces, and if they could just, you know, piece it together, and now they can piece it together in 10 minutes with a computer, and they get the whole, quote, virus. So they don't think it's a fraud. They think it's brilliant science. And... It's interesting stuff, you know. You do find drawbridges, and you have to, you know, people like me have to account for why do you find drawbridges. The, the, the interesting answer when it comes to viruses is these pieces like drawbridges, it turns out they're genetic material, and here's the, here's the punchline. We have the same genetic material as viruses. So when you find drawbridges, it turns out you have drawbridges too. Mm-hmm. And you don't know where the drawbridge came from, whether it came from you or this castle. And that's what confuses them. Right. And that kind of leads me to a question I had on testing, because I was going to ask you that anyway. I know there's so much confusion on testing because. On one hand, you see all these different symptoms for a coronavirus now. Like the list is so extremely long. Like originally it was like three things. Now it's like 12 things. Like if you have a stuffy nose, a sore throat, anything, they're basically characterizing that as coronavirus. And then you have these PCR tests that we know are giving so many false positives because you have people that are completely symptom free, never had any symptoms, getting a positive test going, oh my gosh, I guess I'm infectious. I need to quarantine myself. And then you have some in the medical field saying, wait a second, these tests are picking up cellular fragments of prior debris or viruses, however you want to say it, that is not related to a current active infectious virus. And there's a lot of issue with that. And then you've got all these negative antibody tests where people are like, hey, I had all these symptoms, but nothing's showing up. And it's just all over the place. And then they're using that testing to define our lockdown policies. What are your thoughts on kind of the whole testing issue? So I would take issue with there's a lot of false positives because that would imply that there's some sort of gold standard which you could compare this test to. In other words, a a surrogate test, which is what a PCR test, has to be compared to something you know is true. It's an example. If you do a pregnancy test, the way you can find out the false positives is you take a bunch of 20-week pregnant women, and how do you know they're pregnant? Because they're pregnant, right? And you can do an ultrasound. So you know who's positive and who isn't. Right. And then you can do a surrogate test, and you can find out, you know, if you have 100 women who are you know are pregnant, and 95 of them test positive on your test, you know you have a false negative rate of 5%. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if you test, you know, 100 women who you know aren't pregnant, and three of them show up positive on a pregnancy test, you know you have a false positive rate of And then you can decide how valid you think the test is. The problem with, with, with these viral PCR tests is because nobody has ever done isolation, purification, uh, contagious proof. Uh, you don't have any gold standard to compare it to 
So they compare the PCR test to themselves, mm-hmm. which is like you, you develop a pregnancy test and you never tested it against pregnant women. You just tested it against other tests. And in other words, the test is not inaccurate. It's meaningless. Mm. The difference. We don't know how many false positives and false negatives because there is no way to compare it to anything that would tell us. And, you know, I, I do a little, um, it may not be that funny, but I do a little uh, explanation to people on what antibody tests mean, right? So let me go through that to help people understand. So antibody tests, we're told and we're taught, mean you're immune to that virus pr- probably for life. That's why we do them with, you know, seeing if you've had a vaccine, you then you test to see if you have antibodies. And the way it works is first you make IgM antibodies, which are nonspecific, and then two weeks later you make IgG antibodies. Those are specific to the virus, and then you're immune for life. That's how it's supposed to go. So let's look at the history of of testing for antibodies. So you have a disease like mumps. So that's caused by a virus. You have IgG antibodies, and you're immune for life, and then you never get mumps again. So that one seems to work. And then you have uh, measles. So you test for IgG antibodies, you have them, and then you're immune to measles for life. Except we just proved that measles doesn't exist, so I'm not sure what you're making antibodies against. Never mind. Let's go to chickenpox. So you have chickenpox, you make IgG antibodies, and then you're immune for life. Except if you get shingles, and that's a different kind of chickenpox, so you're not exactly immune for life, you're sort of immune for life. So let's go to another example. So that you have a rhinovirus, and then you make IgG antibodies. But this time, instead of being immune for life, a lot of people get a rhinovirus, i.e. a cold, every year for every, you know, once or twice a year for 20 years. So apparently we're not immune for life if we get antibodies to that. Mm-hmm. Take the case of HIV. So if you have symptoms of AIDS and you go get an IgG antibody test and you're positive, for now, instead of being immune for life, they tell you that you're made sick because of this virus and it's going to kill you, even though you have positive antibodies. And there's no explanation of how come with mumps it made you immune for life, but with HIV you're actually sick from the virus. The same thing with hep C. We do antibodies, and then we say the reason your liver is falling apart is because you have a virus, so even though you have antibodies, it doesn't mean you're immune. And I think you can see the point here is the whole thing is actually kind of a vaudeville show. Mm. Like, it doesn't mean anything. Um, some of the time, you know, you go and you have, think you have Lyme disease, so they do an antibody test. And the Lyme literate doctors say that's proof you have Lyme disease. And the infectious disease doctors say you're a lunatic. And just because you have antibodies doesn't mean you have anything. And with coronavirus, if you have antibodies, they say, and I have a quote from head of infectious disease at Wake Forest, if you have antibodies to coronavirus, it means you're either, you either have the virus or you didn't have the virus. <laughs> and it means... It means you were either sick or you weren't sick. Oh, gosh. And, and I said, it's like going to buy a refrigerator and you go in the store and you say, 
I want a refrigerator. And, he, and the guy said, yeah, it's a very good refrigerator. It'll either keep the food cold or it won't. And that's the thing. I think that's why people are so disappointed with, you know, these quote unquote experts is that this information is very inconsistent. It's always changing. But my big concern is how it's driving actual policy that we are now being affected by, whether it's business or, you know, kids not being able to be in school or whatever. And and to me, that just the science has never been there from the beginning, which is why I think a lot of people are angry. And then you have a lot of people that are just going along with it that are just kind of like, well, this is what Fauci says, or this is what somebody says, not not even thinking about, but that doesn't make sense. Or they just said something completely different two months ago. Like nobody seems to be right. paying attention to the inconsistency. And that's a huge red flag for me. Well, I, I think I have. And that's why I just said that. Um, but here, here's the bottom line. And, and maybe we can finish with this. But there's two possibilities for what a human being will, re- will react to when they hear these kind of inconsistencies. If, they, if somebody says an antibody test either means you, were, you had the virus or you didn't, there's two possible reactions you can have. One, which is what most people have, is, man, this stuff is so complicated, I can't possibly understand it, so I'm going to leave it to the expert. That's one possible reaction. The other possible reaction is these guys don't know what they're talking about. And I'll bet the whole thing doesn't make any sense. In fact, every time I hear them talk about this and then that, and, and, and this is like being in Alice in Wonderland, where the only thing that you can prove is that everybody's crazy. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, there's, it takes a lot of confidence for most people, because we're talking about a subject that, you know, we're basically scientifically illiterate. And so they, they naturally say, in fact, I read an article the other day where uh, an astrophysicist was trying to convince people that they can't possibly understand this stuff, so they should leave it to the experts. And so when you hear this confusing nonsense, you know, first of all, wear a mask, and then it doesn't work, and then wear it sometimes, and then wear it in bed, and then, <laughs> you know, whatever. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. And you can either then say to yourself, yeah, this is so complicated, I can't possibly understand it, so I'm just going to forget about it. It's, it's sort of called cognitive dissonance. Right. Or you can say, I don't buy it, and I'm going to look into this myself. Right. And all I can say is that's what I did. And it turns out it's not really so complicated. There's very clear rules on how human beings understand the world and this is no different than anything else and i've laid them out in my book and anybody can read them and if anybody disagrees with how i think they should let me know and it's really as simple as that but it comes down to people have to trust their own sense of thinking and their own intuition and that's what they don't i agree and that's the tragedy of I agree. So you have this book, The Contagion Myth, and when is that out? You can buy it pre, pre-ordered on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Oh, okay, week. nice. Great. So everybody check that out. And then where can people follow you to get more information about some of your talks and your video lectures or information that you're offering? Yeah, the best is Dr. Tom Cowan, D 
D-R-T-O-M-C-O-W-A-N.com. Perfect. Well, I'll have everybody check into that, and I will um, post some more information on my pages when this goes live. I appreciate it, and I know our listeners will as well. So thank you so much for doing the show today. Okay. Thank you. Take care. Well, that was really interesting. I feel like there was so much more we could talk about, stuff about asymptomatic transmission and herd immunity. I'd love to find out what his thoughts are on that. Maybe we'll be able to do that in a next episode. Um, like I said, if you haven't checked out the first uh, episodes we did with him, Dr. Bob and I did on the vaccine conversation, it's a great interview about the immune system. And he's a medical doctor, as he's as he's saying now, he you know, he's changed his belief system over time, the more and more he gets to know, the more he realizes some differences to kind of what he originally thought. And I find that very interesting. He has a new book coming out again called The Contagion Myth, and it's available for pre-order now. And you can visit his website, drtomcowan.com. He has some videos up there and other information. So like always, uh, like bringing you different types of things and experts in their own field, people who offer something really interesting and intelligent and force us all to think critically and differently. Hope you enjoyed this episode and I will catch you next time on What They Aren't Telling You. Thanks for listening.